Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Space is often called the final frontier, a place of billions and billions of worlds awaiting explorers and pioneers. But what will those journeys be like, and what gear will people need for them, and perhaps most importantly of all, what sort of people will make those travels? There are a lot of famous science fiction writers, but only a few are of truly legendary status, and one of those is Robert Heinlein, often called the Dean of Science Fiction Writers, and a lot of that comes down to the sheer amount of accurate detail he often vested in his work. One of the examples of that is his novel Have Spacesuit Will Travel in 1958, written the year before Starship Troopers, as the last novel in his young adult series with Scribner, and critically, before anyone has been to space and more than a decade before we walked on the moon. I won't spoil the novel, it's a classic, but it tells the story of a young man trying to win a trip to the moon as a prize and instead getting a distant runner-up gift of a used spacesuit in need of much repair. Our young protagonist goes into detail on how he fixes it up, and Heinlein gets so many things right about future spacesuits and also managed to make that whole explanation as entertaining as it is informative. The protagonist gets it working and restored in every detail and ends up getting picked up by real aliens to begin the main plot. That's part of the inspiration for today's episode, probably to no one's surprise, and another part is from the famous TV show that was on when Highland wrote that novel, Have Gun Will Travel, which tells the tale of Paladin, who was a mix of investigator and gunfighter traveling around the Old West. Folks sometimes ask me where I get the inspiration for a given episode, and it varies, but often I'll see some piece of artwork, and it just says a topic to me, as the art for today's episode did, and I found myself thinking how much of sci-fi, especially earlier sci-fi and space opera, is basically old Wild West tales of the lone traveler in strange lands, where the law and justice aren't often to be found and you live or die on your skill and wits. We often say that early sci-fi is the Wild West with laser guns for pistols and aliens for Indians, and there's some truth to that, but I would say they represent the same basic story we see in plenty of other times and places too, just as we often see the samurai turned ronin appear in science fiction form, or knights and dragons or many other historical, literary, or mythological accounts of someone wandering far from home and encountering peril and often passing on an easier or safer life for the sake of their journey or principles. And for a lot of us, that is the allure of space, the great unknown, the final frontier, the ocean of the night. But is it real? Is there a future where a person can travel from world to world, and not just as a tourist, to actually go to those frontiers and make a difference? Can you have a lone spaceship to travel around, like a horse, or is there maybe the equivalent of a horse in that spacesuit? Maybe it is your trusted companion, horse or dog or even sidekick. Maybe you don't have a Millennium Falcon or Firefly, just a spacesuit and maybe a backpack. Or maybe you've just got a satchel and a towel, like Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The good news is that we can't yet say for sure, 
one way or another. There are too many unknowns, and unknown unknowns, but we usually look at the universe through the lens of no FTL or faster than light travel or communication. Folks who accept that tend to assume that you're spending decades traveling between places, so if you're roaming from world to world every episode, you're either doing it in some form of cryostasis or maybe virtual reality. Otherwise, even if you were functionally immortal, there's an awful lot of years to be spent in travel to the next action-packed episode. 24 hours on Planet X followed by 24,000 days on board your personal space yacht, drinking tea and catching up on your writing, and just sitting around in the bathtub watching the clock tick away, what Douglas Adams once called the long, dark tea time of the soul. And that frontier would be moving fairly fast from that perspective, any given colony might only be a wild west for a couple of centuries before it's grown and normalized, I can imagine someone looking for adventure or just trailing colony ships on an eternal zigzag to the Galactic Rim, but that's not really my idea of an adventure or hero, more like a vulture, hoping to find trouble, or maybe to make it. If you really messed up your timing, you would arrive on that almost lawless colony to find out it was already suburbs and convenience stores from coast to coast. It could happen though, it is a very real option for virtual reality worlds, which are not likely to conform to standards or map out well, and which as we discussed before in our episode Virtual Worlds might as well be real colonies if a certain degree of emulation accuracy occurs, or if we drift to being post-biological. A trillion colonies here on Earth alone, with no standard for physical laws, let alone legal ones. But it can also happen in the regular universe. We could imagine our hero, we'll call him Hunter, chasing after a lone villain, a solo criminal who kept fleeing from world to world on the expanding galactic fringe, and always had a chance to recruit new thugs to slow Hunter down as he tried to foil the villain's scheme, and right the wrongs he leaves behind. Hunter's been jumping from world to world at 20% of light speed for 200,000 years now, and rarely spends more than a couple months outside of hibernation. He's around 30,000 light years from Earth now, at his 414th stop, and in the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy trying to catch his nemesis, who he believes is operating with some pirates who have taken over a peaceful agricultural colony on a large moon orbiting a gas giant around an ancient red giant star. Newly colonized systems don't have very developed detection grids, but still enough to spot a decelerating interstellar spaceship, so Hunter plans to sneak in by running his ship right into the star from the opposite side and plowing through its outer atmosphere to bleed his speed off, then drift in like an asteroid being caught by that gas giant's gravity to its Trojan point. Then he'll get his nemesis, no time for him to plan, no escape this time, no holding the colonists hostage until Hunter gives him a head start, escaping like back on Beta 9. And even if he somehow slips through his fingers again, Hunter knows it's just a matter of time. The galaxy's a big place, but most of it is lifeless and will stay that way, and even if his nemesis flees to each of the million habitable planets of the Milky Way, Hunter will find him, eventually. I could see chases like that happening, but there is no need for century-long flight times to a new haven or next episode, so to speak. Channel regulars know that the idea that most planets are barren and most stars unsuited to life is not really pertinent to what future galactic civilizations would look like. 
It may be that nearly every planet already has some sort of life and of a type we can be vaguely compatible with, or it may be that there is not a single microbe in this galaxy away from Earth, and neither matters to what human settlements will tend to look like. Odds are good that the future settlers of space still resemble something more or less human, not AI or post-biologicals living on computers, then it isn't finding that one planet in a hundred that's ready for Earth-like life, it's about the million minor planets in every star system waiting to become a space colony and a frontier town. In our recent episode, Colonizing the Kuiper Belt, we noted that there were far more floating mountains of ice and rock in the Kuiper Belt than in its better known cousin, the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, probably tens of millions of objects miles or more across, and that each of those could easily house thousands if not millions of people. They may be far apart but they can be reached in months or weeks without any FTL travel, and a spaceship between them need not be anything too fancy or high-tech. Indeed a lone person in a reasonably high-tech spacesuit might be able to make that journey. Things are far closer together in the inner system, with a million of those minor planets all within a light hour of Earth, and between each star are vast equivalents of our own Oort cloud, even more spread out and remote, but likely containing entire major planets ejected into the galactic sprawl of interstellar space. How many of these might be rocks that were only ever attractive for their isolation and unused resources, and thus not of much interest to immigrants beyond that initial wave? Nor would they be likely to be able to support populations of major nations, just a big town perhaps. These might be the equivalent of rural mining towns or log cabins, barely noticeable as more than a rounding error compared to the far greater immensity of the inner system Dyson swarms, and yet they might count in the many millions in each solar system and each home to thousands if not millions of people, and with no clear distinction or ending between solar systems, for a sprawl of quintillions of ruled settlements throughout the galaxy and no end to them, just a hazy indistinct boundary where you might technically be in a new star system but no one is too sure because no greater empire or star nation claims them, and the tax man knows better than to come around trying to count heads and demand money. In a situation like that, I think it is quite plausible that we would always have some frontier or some isolated places, even after the whole galaxy had been settled for a long time, and that some intrepid traveler might not need a fancy FTL spaceship or cryotube to survive the trip without dying of old age or going mad from the wretched boredom of being immortal and cruising the stars, that long dark tea time of the soul I mentioned, as described by Wowbagger, the infinitely prolonged, in Douglas Adams' novel, Life, the Universe, and Everything, and which I've always suspected was an influence in the creation of Trazen the Infinite, another immortal sci-fi character who deals with time by collecting antiquities, often with the assistance of a personal army. Neither him nor Wowbagger are noted for their diplomacy and kind hearts. Of course if you're trying to deal with immortality, rolling around the stars on a century-long voyage might be one good approach for that. Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged made it his mission to go to a planet, insult someone, then go find the next person on the next planet, in alphabetical order, and insult them too. The million-year-old clones in Alistair Reynolds' novel House of Suns journey the galaxy in long circles, 
meeting back up with their thousand other clones once every couple hundred thousand years to share notes and memories and then go back out at 99% of light speed to do it again. And what they find is that those who aren't using stasis fields and relativistic travel to help pass the time, even though they have effectively infinite life extension technology galaxy-wide, just tend to have an effective half-life. People die and civilizations collapse, and even though many of them were long-lived star empires, who lasted far longer than any national empire of our past, it still remains that if you came back a hundred thousand years later, they were basically guaranteed to be gone their civilization paved over and replaced dozens of times already, and a dozen more before you came back around again, not because they were unstable, but simply because a thousand years is a really long time, and a million years a whole lot longer, and if you are so stable and unchanging that you only had a 1% chance of your civilization falling in any given century, then your odds of making it through a hundred centuries is pretty slim. I don't think there's any civilization around right now that could claim they had a 99% chance of being basically the same in culture and border in a century. And honestly, I don't think that's a place I would want to live anyway, because if centuries roll by and you're still recognizable when it's over, we'd also call that stagnant. And this isn't necessarily meaning that they blew themselves up or toppled over in some civil war or calamity just the sort of changes that would make it hard to go from Shakespearean London to modern times, let alone thousands of years ago when there was no London and you could have walked to mainland Europe without getting your feet wet. Why this matters though is something we explored in more detail in our Derelict Megastructures episode, where we noted that often a city or space habitat is going to have large sections under repair, or abandoned for some reason. Even if only 1 in 10,000 big or near cylinder sized habitats was at any given time evacuated or damaged and home to a relative handful of squatters, then a full Dyson Swarm, that would mean 100 billion of them were in that state around this star, 200,000 Earths worth of living area in an abandoned state, a classic galactic empire worth of planets all on its own and a like number around every other one of the hundreds of billions of other stars in this galaxy. That's an awful lot of ruins or frontiers for people to be having adventures in, to go hide from the law, or bring justice to that frontier, or be the bounty hunter looking for that criminal that fled, and often likely just days of travel away from some other place in the inner system, and maybe weeks or months out in the deepest interstellar voids. The asteroid belt in the year 5000 AD is made of a few million space towns, most embedded into asteroids, some free-floating, that each range from a mining town of a few hundred to the megalopolis of Vesta, population 2 billion. There are a hundred trillion people living in the belt, and with room for growth, and whole regions not being any closer to another piece of civilization than our own moon is to Earth. And yet the Beltor clans who move from settlement to settlement, trading odds and ends, can put together spaceships that are less sophisticated than the ones that brought their ancestors to the belt, or even to the moon. They just don't need much engine to move through the belt, and the whole thing is littered with old mined out asteroids where people just moved on, that they can use as campsites or storage depots, or have to watch out for the space pirates hiding inside. 
Sometimes they explore those because of the tens of thousands of derelicts and ghost towns out there. Some are likely to still have hidden treasure in them, in one form or another, or turn out to be full of malignant AI or crazed mutant cults. It's all about adjusting our view of the classic space opera galaxy-wide setting of a few thousand inhabited planets to one in which a single star system has a billion times more towns and cities spread across its voids than we have here on Earth, and a billion more such star systems just inside our region of the galaxy that would look like a lone pixel on a picture of that galaxy. A thousand mighty galactic empires of space opera could fit in our asteroid belt, and with it a million lawless mining towns and space ranches. So that answers our question. I think that there would be a lot of times and places where you could travel alone from town to town, so to speak. Now, how would you do that? That's just as hard to answer because there isn't likely to be a single method that's equally applicable everywhere and every when. Partially it depends on technology. You can do a lot more roaming if you've got some little blue police box that's bigger on the inside than outside and can jump around to any place or time in the universe, but even inside known physics, it matters a lot if your peak energy technology is chemical fuels and modern batteries, or if you've got cheap and safe antimatter production and storage. If you've got the latter, then you can be traveling around from derelict megastructures to remote asteroid mines in a personal ship or even a personal suit, because even if you're only carrying around 10% of your mass as antimatter, be it ship's fuel pods or spacesuit backpack, that's letting you move between planets in the same solar system in days at full 1G thrust the whole time. Something like a portable and feedable micro-black hole would be even better, as every bit of stray dust can sustain you, and any rock or ice ball can refuel you. Or maybe by vacuum point energy, our topic for next week where the very void of space itself, even in the sparsest regions of intergalactic space and cosmic voids, might offer you a constant power supply. We can imagine a spacesuit, even one potentially able to be made in this century, that might have such versatility. Probably not powered by antimatter or micro-black hole, but what about nanobot self-replicators the size of your own biological cells that could just use a trickle of power from your suit's solar cells cannibalize bits of your suit or supplies to make more solar panels, or a little probe or drone that could race off to the nearest tiny rock, cannibalize into a few more drones and some supplies, and next thing you know, even though you're floating in the interplanetary void by yourself, and with not much more tech than we have today, those robots assemble a whole walking spaceship, solar array, space farm, and comfortable quarters for you which it might do even if you were already dead. It's hard to restore someone long dead on Earth because all that biology is still happening, you are not just some frozen or dehydrated husk of a body after a few days, like you would be in space, you've been outgassing and getting eaten and bits of your brain might be inside a bug that in turn is inside some bird's stomach a hundred miles away. See our episode Technological Resurrection for more discussion of the issues. But in space it might be that your suit is quite capable of preserving you until help arrived, or help was accumulated by its self-replicating drones. You get flushed out of an airlock and it just seals you up and scans your brain to use that as a repair template for later. Or maybe it seals off your head inside the helmet 
and cannibalizes everything else to make rescue beacons or propel that head to safer territory for pickup and repair. Same concept applies for a spaceship of course, except it probably has more resources at hand. I have difficulty imagining anybody being very fond of that approach to survival, especially given that it implies you have that information teleportation technology where you scan a brain and transmit it at light speed to another distant place, but are choosing not to use it, in favor of taking a slower spaceship, which kind of implies you don't like that option of sending your brain by radio or don't trust it, which might be for a very good reason. But there are a lot of aspects to survival and one of the aspects that applies to teleportation or hibernation is that the copy of you that arrives at the destination isn't you, just a copy and you died, and that same worry applies to whether or not you maintain continuity and consciousness as opposed to a thoroughly dead and frozen brain that's been artificially rebuilt a century later. Which raises another aspect of survival, which is staying sane while in transit. Just doing that on a spaceship with potentially large sections to live in and spend time in seems pretty dreadful at times, but imagine floating in a spacesuit in the void, alone, or as a disembodied head, alone, in the void, floating like that, conscious, for potentially a lifetime, a potentially very, very long lifetime. It might not take a lot of power either, your brain needs about 10 watts to keep running, your whole body more like 100 watts, not a very high power requirement even if converting to your type of energy needs was losing a lot of the harvested power in conversion. So maintaining your active brain during that trip might be viewed as a fulfillable necessity to keep you alive, a pretty plausible one since you are decidedly dead otherwise, even if possibly restorable. And that's where it really helps to have that loyal sidekick or animal companion your trusty horse or dog or mule. And yet, we need to remember that that suit doesn't need to be all that much better than ChatGPT to allow you to chat along at it, and while we imagine a personal spaceship as a yacht of many rooms with libraries and rec rooms and maybe even gardens, a library in even the modern digital era could fit more books on a thumb drive than any physical library holds. I think it's plausible enough to imagine a spacesuit with all sorts of heads-up displays and audio inputs and maybe even sophisticated control of sensory input and medications, and we could probably beam in virtual reality similar to what we have nowadays even without needing to contemplate direct neural stimulation and linkage. If the onboard AI makes Jarvis from Iron Man look like the clunky dialogue boxes of 1990s video games, there's a good chance it can help you stay sane and maybe even happy on the journey. Now, the flip side of that though is that unless your suit is some special relic of alien origin or a bygone golden age, when you arrive at any destination, that destination has all that awesome tech too. So even though that regular old spacesuit might let you beat the snot out of Iron Man, it really is nothing of note in any place you arrive. And while that's easy enough to hand wave to make an awesome sci-fi story of basically showing up as the elite and dangerous lone gunfighter on a lawless space habitat, in reality you are probably just the person with the equivalent of the coolest camping or hunting gear and luggage and probably on the spaceship equivalent of a passenger plane, or bus even. 
though we can't rule out that the sheer amount of energy needed for interstellar travel might make it that personal one-man pods or suits were the normal way of traveling, because it only meant moving a few hundred kilograms of matter to relativistic speeds, not several tons per person or even kilotons. Your Iron Man supersuit with onboard Jarvis AI, which we'll instead call Oscar to avoid confusion, might be able to dodge any incoming space debris big enough to kill you, vaporize bits that were hazardous but not necessarily deadly, or grab them and use them for extra fuel, and to feed and repair you during the trip. I think we would tend to think of that like some coffin-shaped pod or torpedo. We see an example of that when we meet Worf's girlfriend the first time in Star Trek The Next Generation, and it's a pretty horrifying seeming way to travel. But it could be a spacesuit as easily, and again, it's not going to be difficult to incorporate a digital library of vast knowledge and entertainment into that suit. It also raises the point that the line between ship and suit could get pretty hazy, and also that whatever it is might be changeable. A couple hundred kilograms of smart matter could be a suit one moment and a pod the next, or even a modestly sized room with furnishings, though probably hollow ones, and while big ships seem cool, they are like big houses, a pain to heat and cool and repair. I've got a few thousand books covering the walls in my household of bookworms, and tons in the office downstairs where I write these episodes, and I love those books and yet I mostly listen to their digital audiobook versions, and my collection of sci-fi reference books and textbooks mostly sits idle in favor of web searching for answers. People who are pretty transhuman, or cybernetic, or even just regular you or I, but in a suit like that, don't really need the same household infrastructure. Even if they like physical books, that just means a little of their smart matter shifts into a book while reading it. I'm reminded of the still suits from Dune, which are basically spacesuits, and designed to be worn without removal whenever outside, even if for weeks at a time, and that is a good reminder that a spacesuit isn't necessarily just for space, it might need to be able to do things like handle murderous flora and fauna in some alien Jurassic Park, or that you walk around inside high pressure or high gravity environments that would crush a submarine, and it might do that by flooding your lungs with breathable liquid. So too, like those still suits from Dune, they might be quite capable of processing waste, from sweat and dead skin cells to urine and feces, and maybe right back into entirely palatable nutrients without needing a lot of the in-between steps like processing plants and composters. It probably needs a way to clean your skin too and keep you from getting rashes, and maybe it has artificial lighting inside to get sunlight on your skin and maybe it injects you with vitamin D. In the future, especially for people who don't live full-time in comfortable megastructures, for the sorts of people who walk and travel through space, owning your own personal spacesuit might be a rite of passage akin to buying a car, and I would expect them to be as personalized as our phones and bedrooms, and comfortable too, with plenty of room inside to easily scratch any itch the operator has. Hunter, our protagonist from earlier, might very well fancy a suit with a poncho like an old western cowboy, except his poncho was embedded with flexible solar and piezoelectric generators to top off his suit's power supply. He might tuck it aside if it's a nuisance in zero-g, or let it drape over him and trickle-charge his suit as he walks through a newly established Kalpana mining town in search of his villainous prey. 
he may not necessarily need a spacesuit fashioned after an old cowboy theme, but as he's spending weeks at a time in it, then it might as well have a style he likes. While there, Hunter finds out his target has taken refuge on a ward of large alien reptile creatures and may be stranded, a nice scientist, who styled her bright pink suit to be reminiscent of a pterodactyl's, agrees to give Hunter a ride down to the planet's surface where he hopes at last to complete his centuries-long quest. There is an obvious implication if you are on an alien dino world that you have a jetpack and a rifle able to kill a T-Rex, but just to spoil some old movies, no, a dinosaur would not survive tangling with armored vehicles and heavy caliber guns, so you probably don't need some super cannon on your suit. But you might have something that could punch out Godzilla or Cthulhu too. You never know what you might run into among the wild stars on the galactic fringe, and possibly while riding on a dinosaur too, which would be almost as awesome as having your own spacesuit to travel around the final frontier. So that's it for today in September, but we'll be back next week to begin October with a look at Zero Point and Vacuum Energy, mysterious power sources which may be even better than fusion as an energy supply. Then next week we have two episodes exploring the fabrication of the future, starting next Thursday with a look at Spaceship Factories, and then on to Sci-Fi Sunday on October 15th, where we'll contemplate entire planets turned into giant factories, in Forge Worlds and Industrial Planets. Then we'll ask the big question of if life extension is ethical on October 19th. Then we'll look at another type of dedicated planet, Fortress Worlds, on October 26th, and wrap things up on Sunday, October 29th, with our monthly livestream Q&A. And while you're waiting, you can check out last week's livestream or regular episode on Atmospheric Mining. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes, early and ad-free, on our streaming service Nebula, along with hours of bonus content at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.